Hey folks, I hope that you are all having a fantastic day. This episode is with the executive director of the City Surf Project, Johnny Irwin. The mission of the City Surf Project is to teach underserved youth from low-income communities in San Francisco valuable life skills through the sport of surfing. By learning to ride waves, students will build self-confidence and discover tools necessary to overcome boundaries both in and out of the water. I volunteer with the City Surf Project and am behind them 100%. Volunteering is one of the most selfish things that we can do because it makes us feel good. Apathy is dangerous. And as Cory Booker once said, we cannot let our inability to do everything undermine our determination to do something. So head over to City Surf Project and get involved. Normally at this time in the show, I would be asking you to go over to my website to donate to the podcast. But today, any money that you were thinking about giving to me, go to citysurfproject.com and give it to them. Be generous. They are doing good work. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, head over to my website, kyle.surf. Not kyle.surf.com, just kyle.surf. Uh... Let me know recommendations for new guests, feedback on the show, anything at all. I'm also on Instagram. All right, please welcome my guest, Johnny Irwin, the executive director of the City Surf Project. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah, there was no surf culture in the school. I was the only kid that surfed in my elementary school, in my middle school, high school. Uh, it was definitely foreign to them. Uh, San Francisco is definitely that metropolitan city where, and it's changed now. I think it has way more of a surf culture now, but uh, it was definitely, there was very little or the surf culture was way out at the beach and it was a small contingency of people. Um, and it was more of a smaller tribe and there was definitely a local crew of, of surfers of older guys my dad included and my friend's dad included but uh it was definitely not thought of in san francisco and it wasn't pervasive that you see now um you see a lot more surfers just out at ocean beach it's way more crowded you know there's definitely more surf culture uh and that was definitely not around in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, the, the whole sunset area has changed radically, it seems like, in the last 20 years. Yeah, the sun's definitely. It's, the sunset has gotten much more popular. Yeah. Uh, they call the sunset the new mission now, Mission District. Uh, it's got much bustling businesses. Many people are moving out there. The rents are way higher. You could buy a home out at Ocean Beach uh, for, for pretty cheap. And now it's pretty expensive. Uh, and it's a very popular place to live. Uh, 
I was on a date with a girl last night and she said, I asked where she lived and she said at the outer Richmond, which is near the beach. And that threw me for a loop because I was assuming she was going to say another neighborhood that was much more popular, like the Marina, the mission district. But, um, it's actually a place where, you know, young people kind of hipper people are, are moving out there. And a lot of surfers are moving out there too. A lot of people are coming to ocean beach to, to surf. I think there was some articles in the 90s and 2000s and the 2011 rip curl contest which really put ocean beach on the map as a a surf destination you can surf pretty much any all year round uh and so there's a lot more people coming to live there to surf there yeah san francisco seems like it's in this place right now where you have these multiple worlds colliding whether we're talking about the sunset and how that used to be lower income largely asian neighborhood Right. Yeah. Is, was, is that is that fair to say that kind of before this whole um, before a lot of this money was moved in, it was I, I might be way off here, but yeah, it was true. It's yeah. And it still is a large Asian population yeah. in the in the Sunset District in the Richmond District. Uh, uh, yeah, there's still is a um, lot of uh, large Asian community. Historically, it was an Irish. Uh, the Sunset was an, a large Irish uh, neighborhood. Uh, and a lot of the those families have kind of moved, been moved out from first the Asian families and now just um, wealthier families coming in and buying those properties as well. Right. Um, speaking of worlds colliding... Right. Let's talk about what it is that you're doing now Mm -hmm. and how that all came about. Yeah. So uh, growing up in San Francisco, uh, it was a diverse place to grow up. Uh, A lot of different communities. Um, So I kind of I saw it all. And then I really felt um, a part of the urban San Francisco and really felt myself a city kid. but then I would go down to Hermosa Beach and I would be, become a beach kid. And then in high school, I connected myself with the Ocean Beach surfer community, the Kelly's Cove community, and realized that there was actually a beach community in San Francisco. But all the while, um, still really seeing a separation between the urban community and the beach community. Um, and so I started, so I went to UC Santa Cruz and, uh, and got my degree in sociology and then came back to San Francisco and, uh, got my teaching credential and started teaching. Um, so in San Francisco, you started teaching. Yeah. In San Francisco, started teaching at a pretty rough high school. Uh, so just to kind of take it back a little, a couple steps of sort of my background and in the position that I'm coming from and where my family's coming from. Uh, my dad was a, a surfer. Uh, first and foremost, he considers himself always a surfer. Grew up in Van Nuys uh, in about the late 40s, early 50s. Um, and he got into some trouble as a, as a youngster. He was in his 20s, came from a broken home. His parents were in a failed marriage and his father was ch- drinking and cheating on on his mother, my grandmother, and he ended up basically leaving home at about 17, realizing that the the family was dysfunctional um, and kind of got in with the wrong crowd and uh, started stealing to support himself. Uh, 
all the while my dad was passing his high school classes, even though he wasn't going. So he had this kind of intrinsic, uh, smarts. Uh, he could go to class and pass. So he was smart. He was intelligent. Uh, and which is kind of funny because he was also getting into this thug lifestyle. So goodwill hunting, right? Exactly. And, uh, got in, fell in with the wrong crowd, uh, as typically as does, and actually started doing heroin, um, and stealing to support his heroin habit. And he got caught. Um, and he went to Soledad prison, which is along the 101 in, in kind of central California. Uh, he went there for five years and, uh, and well, while in prison decided to turn his life around and he started reading, getting educated. He got out of prison, went down to UCLA, uh, to get his degree and started surfing. Uh, surfing was becoming, was getting bigger than this is the early sixties now and surf culture was kind of flourishing and he was surfing Dewey Weber and he would surf in Hermosa beach. Um, so that's where that's that foreshadowing of Hermosa beach comes in because Hermosa beach at that time had a good beach break. It's before they built the King Harbor and, uh, the, uh, Marina del Rey, which killed those beach breaks in LA County. Uh, so he, uh, surfing, Went up to San Francisco, got his master's, got his PhD in sociology and criminology. And his focus was on um, learning about criminal lifestyle and learning about the typical, uh, what we call uh, deviant criminal and how to really look at society um, and how to change society so that we can help um, how we can help basically lower the crime rates. And it's uh, from a really left wing standpoint is looking at society as kind of the cause of a lot of criminal activity in the societal forces. Right. That's what sociology basically says is that um, society is kind of to, to blame for our social problems and for criminal activity. It's not really people, but it's people forced in these situations. So he uh, was a criminologist and got pretty famous in his in his uh in his field of criminology, um, all the while professing that we need to, uh, all the while professing that we need to, uh, take a look at our society and really th think about how we can change society in a way that's going to, um, be help people, help people impoverished so that they won't be forced into criminal activity. Right. So you're saying that was a, a left wing stance, how so, and what would the right wing stance to criminal activity be? Yeah, so it's it's a left wing stance because it's it's basically saying that um, society is more to blame for uh, the for the poverty that people are stricken with, and that uh, our rules, our systems that are set up, are meant to make people fail, um, namely African American and Latino people, because they're born into a a plighted position and into a, into a basically a fucked up position where they can't win because of all these societal forces can't get a job because of racism, uh, don't have, um, you know, don't have a good education because of their impoverished community because the schools are bad. Um, you know, can't get a, basically can't get a, a leg up in the world. Right. One example would be the, uh, the law, that the U.S. placed uh, during the war on drugs to make um, the the criminal um, repercussions of using crack as opposed to cocaine much worse. 
um, knowing that crack is was predominantly being used in black neighborhoods, whereas cocaine was primarily a white drug, even though they're basically the exact drug just synthesized in a different way. Exactly. The, a great example, um, the war on drugs. Uh, and then in the 80s, 70s, sorry, 60s, 70s, 80s, we have mass incarceration. And it was a way for the the community to and politicians to raise prison sentences which would in turn keep a whole population imprisoned and never really let them out and like you're saying giving high prison sentences sentences for crack cocaine and lower sentences for like a white drug which was powder cocaine so as a criminologist during the 80s my dad was writing books one book he wrote was it's about time where he was basically saying we have a mass incarceration there you go we have a mass incarceration problem and we need to take a look at our our laws our our sentencing laws um the way that we're dealing with with criminal activity um and a right way of thinking be thinking about it a right right wing way right wing way of thinking about it would be saying you know what Um, Everyone is born with the same chances. Um, What you do is up to you. Um, You got to pull yourself by your bootstraps, um, no matter what your situation is. If I did it, you can do it. Anybody can do it. And society is set up equally. There are no, you know, disadvantages. That's why you, you, if you think of affirmative action as a very left wing point of view, and it's saying we need to give um, minorities or people that come from disadvantaged situations, we need to give them preferential treatment because for so much history, they've been, uh, there's been inequality and they've been, uh, you know, forced in these kind of, uh, racist and, uh, unequal situation, unequal situations. Right. So to be able to give them a leg up moving forward to, to balance the playing field. Right. Okay. Well, and I think that it's also important to note that, that your dad's experience in prison isn't the norm for someone to go to prison and then turn their life around like that doesn't usually happen. Usually people go to prison and then they get an education in being a criminal and then they get caught in this system where they, they were 18 years old. They got caught with some drugs. They then get a harsh sentence. They have to join a gang while they're in prison. They have to get a bunch of tattoos. They get out of prison. Who's going to hire you? So you get back in with that gang and then you're caught in the system and you can never get uncaught. Exactly. Yeah. He, he went to prison, what they call as the, the classical prison time when actually prisons actually did rehabilitate you. And that's when they had libraries, extensive, uh, education programs. They had, uh, you, they even had weights. Now they've taken away a lot of, uh, the weights from prisoners because, uh, they thought it, it would make them too big and strong. And for political reasons, they took them away. And this was a huge, huge, um, this is a huge negative thing to happen to them because weights are really important. They're getting their mind, their body right. And so like, like you said, exactly. Um, now there are no weights in prisons anymore. Is that right? They've largely taken free weights away. Yeah. They can use, uh, pull up bars and you'll see dip bars, but the free weights, um, in a lot of prisons have been taken away. Um, so they'll do those, they'll do makeshift, uh, prison workouts, um, 
where you've seen like burpees and and these are these are come yeah. from prison yeah because, burpees are the prison workout exactly because right? there's no weights for them anymore and uh my dad used to talk about that that was a huge blow because a lot of these guys were really as they were trying to get their minds right they're trying to get their bodies right and self-esteem and and that that was a good uh, example of his fight and his fight was for prison reform to reform our prison laws to lower prison sentences and to give uh give people that had made a mistake give them a chance to correct themselves and like you just said what's set up now is that you go to prison or go to jail you go on probation that's easily broken you break your probation because there's so many different variables that allow you to break your probation that it's just a revolving door and it's never ending. Um, so the point of all that is that I came from a household that was very much, um, you were aware of it more than most kids, more than most surfers, at least. Definitely. Definitely. And I, I was always told that there's a lot of inequality set up in our society. And you, the reason we're educating you and we want you to get educated is to do something right by the community. And, there's a lot of haves and have nots in the world and the haves rule and the have nots are large in number, but, uh, they need help. And it's kind of your duty, um, for somebody that has something, a little bit of resources to do what you can to be better people that don't. And that was my religion in in the household i didn't grow up with religion my dad was an atheist by the way and he'll he'll give you his <laughs> argument for that um for a while uh so so i my point is is that i went to school all the while thinking all right i need to get educated but to make my parents happy to make my father happy i need to do something that's giving back um hence going to school and then becoming a teacher and getting my edu uh, getting my education degree and picking a high school uh, that was a tough high school in San Francisco. I just basically looked and looked at a high school that was struggling, that had a demographic that was low income um, and went to teach there. And it was uh, gnarly to evoke a, a surfing term. Um, from day one, I got into the classroom and asked myself, what the fuck am I doing? These kids are looking at me like this white surfer, dude. What the hell are you going to tell me? Uh, the school was largely low income, uh, mainly African-American and Latino. And they looked at me as this kind of foreign object that we're going to run all over because uh, whatever he's saying um, has nothing to do with good, what's going on in my life. And it was a battle for me to really try to gain their trust. I think with a lot of teaching situations, there is a lack of trust between the student and the teacher. And it's not because um, they're necessarily like mad at the teacher because I represent uh, kind of the white, white male dominant figure that's been stepping on them for much of their lives. And uh, I remind them of the police officer that stops them and, and fucks with them uh, on a daily basis. It's more of, I don't trust you. And so how are you going to earn my trust? Uh, so we were, 
it was hard. The first couple few months was was tough. I, I would pull my hair out at home and where was, was the school? It, it was in the southeastern po- pocket of San Francisco, and the its neighborhood is called the Excelsior District, uh, and it's right by Visitation Valley, uh, Bayview, uh, and Lakeview uh, to the west, and right on the border of San Francisco. Many people in San Francisco. Um, don't know the Excelsior. Uh, they, or many people that uh, have not been in San Francisco for a long time, don't have never heard of the Excelsior. And even friends I grew up with didn't know where the Excelsior were was. It it shows you that San Francisco is quite segregated. Yeah, and you're talking about the haves and the have-nots of the world, and a lot of times the have-nots live ten blocks away from you, Absolutely. but you've never seen. That or you just choose to move around that neighborhood very uh, fairly easily. Yeah. So in San Francisco, it is a weird place. Uh, like you just touched upon, that you'll have uh, the Section Eight project housing uh, a block away from a million dollar homes, and you'll have uh, neighborhoods right in the middle, surrounded by really wealthy neighborhoods. And then you have um, gentrifying in the in neighborhoods that are in the middle of gentrification, like the Mission District, which is uh, was hist- you know historically a uh, Latino neighborhood, working class Latino families and are being evicted uh, by uh, wealthier families, mainly from largely from tech money coming in and, and the success of, of the tech bubble coming in and, and displacing those families. Damn you, Twitter. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. Taking away my tortilla shop. Exactly. I love that spot. Exactly. exactly. And right. And uh, you, the tension, the tension is there. Uh, you don't have to uh, go far to, to see the tension. And uh, it's, it's, it's very evident um, amongst the youth too because i work in high in mission high school and we have our surfing program mission high school and which is still largely uh latino and it's a very diverse school uh but it's right in the heart of this uh very changing neighborhood but it's still um a very like i said diverse school and you talk to the students at the school and their families uh, are largely being moved out. A lot of them commute to school um, from other East Bay neighborhoods, and they're they're angry. They're angry about uh, not being connected to their neighborhood anymore and being displaced from their neighborhood. Oh. Describe to me the school a little bit more that you uh, initially started working at. So, yeah, it's called uh, Leadership. It's a charter school that was started in 1997 uh, one of the original charter schools uh, and it's a public school it's publicly funded uh, but it's a standalone charter school so it, it makes its own rules it doesn't have to get okay from the district if it wants to change any policies uh, it's it's a standalone charter school and it's small uh, it's a unique school because of how small it is um, it's a it has mainly uh, African American and Latino population. Was this was the one that you were talking about that you uh, went to teach at after college, correct? Yeah, my first okay. high school teaching experience, uh, and it's uh, it's a school that's actually struggles because many of the many of the students are from first generation 
college going uh, families. Uh, and that's significant because it, it, it tells you about the notion of, of education in, in a lot of their families, um, newly immigrated families where um, the, these students are not getting resource, not getting help with their homework uh, because they're coming from uh, Spanish speaking families where they're not going to get any support. Uh, and education is not seen as something that's going to lead you anywhere. Getting a job that pays consistently and pays well is, is, is that's seen as success. And uh, the school is, is amazing. The population um, is, is what they what they do is amazing is getting these kids graduated and, and actually going to college and they're doing great things. Uh, they're up against, like we talk about a lot of forces against them. Yeah. Trusting the teachers is one as you, uh, as you pointed out, do you remember a conversation that you had with one of the kids where that trust level clicked? So you said you went in and they were looking at you like an alien. What did it take to connect with them? I think it was being consistent and, uh, and really just wearing my heart on my sleeve and really being honest with them. A lot of them didn't realize that I was actually from San Francisco. They would ask me, where are you? You're from Southern California, right? Or, you know, SoCal or some surf town. And I would have to let them know that I know I was from San Francisco and that was that helped as well that I was from San Francisco even though I wasn't from their neighborhood uh they're definitely that helped gain their trust and surfing uh, I think uh when I took a group of students surfing uh and took them out to the beach uh many of them had never been for the first time uh never some of them had never seen the ocean before and that was really impactful and that experience was bonding, but it also, I think, let them know that I really cared to show them different experiences, that I really wanted them to, to be a part of something that was special to me. I grew up surfing, was really lucky to, to have it, and I would go on the weekends and surf all the time and always thought, you know, what if I could take my kids surfing? Would this, would this help them? Would this help them trust me? Would it also help them in their lives? And after that experience, we had bonded and we felt closer and I really got through to some students that I wasn't able to before. And it was under the guise of surfing. Were uh, they open to the idea to describe that first day that you decided to take a group of kids surfing? So there was a, a few different emotions and these are, these are common emotions when you take a kid surfing for the first time who has no connection to the ocean, who's never been before, uh, who has, not who's not a strong swimmer who has a lot of fear around bodies of water so there was fear there was uh, a little bit of um i would say nervousness there was some uh kids not sure uh and then there were some that were really into it like i've been waiting my whole life for somebody to give me this opportunity and but we all made it out there and pretty much every one of them across the board came out stoked. Where'd uh, you go? We actually went uh, to Marin County. Uh, a friend of mine 
has a surf uh, surf camp, Big Dog Surf Camp, Ian Glover. I know Big Dog, yeah. yeah. And it's classic. We, he would see me in the water, ask, hey, how are things going? And I'm teaching, I'm stressed. And he would say, if you ever want to take a group of kids surfing, let me know. So it came March when we do our week without walls. It's where school shuts down for a week and the teachers put on a outdoor education week. And the administration asked me, what can you do? What can you do for us for a week? And I thought surfing, I can, I can pull together a surf camp. Uh, so I asked him, he said, yes. And so we took the bus out to Marin County. That's from Southeastern San Francisco, North all the way to Mir beach in Marin, which took us about maybe an hour and a half, two hours. Uh, didn't have any transportation. The school couldn't afford a van. Uh, they couldn't afford for me to rent a van. Uh, so we took the took um, Muni in San Francisco and Golden Gate Transit, made it out. Uh, Big Dog greeted greeted us, took us out, and put on an amazing camp. Uh, and the kids loved it. They loved Big Dog. Um, they loved uh, the whole surfing experience. And after that week of camp, they would come back to my room during office hours or in between classes, and they'd say, Irwin, my last name, that's they typically call you by your last name. No, mister. It's more informal than that, which is cool because you want to be kind of informal to say, yo, Irwin, when are we going to go surfing again, man? Take us surfing. And I, at that point I was up to my ears and grading papers. I was stressed out as a teacher. I thought, you know, I can't, I can't take you surfing on the weekday weekends. I see you all week long. I'm stressed. Uh, and they'd come in and say, Irwin, man, surfing changed my whole outlook on life. Like, that's all I want to do now is go surfing. I'm done. Just my neighborhood. I realized that there's something else out there besides my neighborhood. I realized that there's a larger world out there. Uh, and when Trayvon, one of my students said that to me, I had this kind of epiphany. I had this epiphany, uh, that I could make this into a more consistent program. Trayvon and other kids, can really benefit from getting out into the ocean, from surfing. And there is a big disconnection between my world and what I get to do and go surfing on the weekends and get to enjoy the beach to these kids who go back to their neighborhoods and sit at home and play video games all weekend because their parents don't want them to leave the house because they're scared that there's something bad's going to happen to violence or they don't want to leave the house because they're going to get sucked into a gang. Yeah, in uh, in schools, uh, people lots of times talk about the the danger times, right? It's like between three and six o'clock right. when they're out of school, but they don't have any activities fulfilling their time that kids tend to get into trouble. So it seems like that's been the, the mad scramble in public schools to figure out those extracurricular activities for kids to keep their minds and their bodies occupied. Yeah, exactly. And summertime as well is a huge time that's when a lot of uh violence amongst youth in in san francisco and those other um typically violent neighborhoods summer they said the summer gets hot and when they say it, it gets hot they mean it, it's a uh double meaning it means not only is the weather getting hot but it's hot with violence and they're saying like you know situations are heating up drama is heating up so yeah there is these extracurricular times that are really important where um, there's a lack for uh, high school kids, for middle school kids. Um, there's a lack of programming and, and 
I saw an opportunity with surfing to get them to the beach, get them out into the ocean. At the very least, it's taking them away from their neighborhood. At the most, we can turn them into water people, into surfers, where they have, like we all do, we have this addiction, if you will, or we have this passion for something. It's, it's it was, surfers may not be artists or, but we have surfing that's a craft of ours that we need to keep coming back to, to be happy, to get fulfilled. And it's in, in, in its simplest form, we're getting out into nature. And in a lot of these neighborhoods that you are working in, there's very little nature around, right? These are the, the areas that tend to have the worst pollution, the least amount of trees. And we now know what getting into nature, even for, I heard a study recently, it was like, like new study shows that spending 15 minutes in nature every week dramatically lowers your cortisol levels. Like, who would have thought, right? Yeah. So, I mean, these are all very simple concepts, but uh, it's it's really amazing how what what little amount of time most people do spend in nature. Totally. Hearing those statistics as a as a surfer, you're like, no, yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah. Like we exactly like I, I, some of them is like, is that really a statistic? That's like saying like sugar tastes good. New yeah. study. And you're yeah. Like, oh, yeah. We knew that it tastes good. Like how is this now new stuff? But you have to take a step back as a surfer and, and people that have, we've gotten the privilege to be by the coast and grow up with this, that I often have to take a step back and take, that we take a lot of it for granted and that, yeah, it's really important for people to get out into nature that had never been before. And it helps them become environmentalists. It helps them have a stake of why, of, of wanting to protect the environments. Uh, we had a pretty interesting interaction or pretty interesting interaction at the beach at ocean beach with our leadership surfing class we were at ocean beach doing our circle up stretch before we go surfing we stretch and we get into a circle and we talk about our goals we talk about what's important parts of the program we have our three pillars of respect nature healthy living and personal growth and those are the pillars that the students should keep in mind as they're enjoying the surf and as they're um, enjoying the waves and involved in the program, three things to keep in mind. And we look over and there's an, a group of another uh, group of youth of high school students walking by and they were just walking and one of them littered trash. And I didn't actually see this. I had somebody explain it to me. I was getting my uh, camera ready to take some pictures. So I, I didn't notice what was going on. And our group yelled over to them, hey, pick up your trash. Don't leave your trash. Pick that up. And they were yelling at these youth. And these youth looked at them like with deer in headlights. Like we've never been told that before. And these these kids are serious. And they went and picked up, litter, uh, picked up the, the litter, the trash, and started walking with it. And for me, that was a crazy moment. Uh, it almost brought a tear to my eye because the kids in my class that they were those kids before they entered my class and they were the kids littering and i had with my program i preached to them about why it's important that one we never litter but why we're trying to clean our beaches why we're environmentalists and and want clean oceans and at that moment they got it 
they really saw that they that beach was theirs to protect it was all of ours to protect and uh, they really had a stake in it. Um, and that was a special moment. Yeah, littering on the beaches is one of those uh, concepts that when you get it, it's so hard to believe that anyone can't see it. Yeah, duh. If you leave your plastic bag on the beach, it's going to go in the ocean. But if you weren't brought up with those concepts being drilled into you, if you didn't go to junior guards as a kid... You just don't think about it. It doesn't come from nefarious intent, you right. know, trying to destroy the oceans. It's just this um, this lack of 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 I guess mindfulness and, and kind of understanding of the ecosystem. So we jumped ahead a little bit yeah. from the first time that you took these kids surfing to what you have going now, which is a consistent program. Uh, Take me from the first time that you took the kids surfing and and what it took to get to where you are now. So it took a leap of faith. It took at the end of the year in April uh, when teachers have to sign uh, sign their letters of commitment to come back for the next year. It was deciding, am I going to come back for another year uh, or uh, am I going to try to create a surfing program? And there is a program called First Tee and it does similar things to uh, then sim- similar things than my program uh they do uh golf for underserved youth and uh i talked to a couple of them and said you know can, do you think this could work with surfing i picked their brains for a while i'm thinking about doing what first t does with golf with surfing is uh teaching life skills uh, uh teaching life skills through surfing and they do that through golf and they were adamant go for it you should do it. We've been thinking about that. I kind of looked around. There wasn't really anything like that. I, I did a little bit of research and there wasn't. And it was a leap of faith. I think it really took um, getting out of my comfort zone uh, because I think as humans and as people, we really look for comfortable situations, uh, things that are... Uh, that we know are going to work, um, that we know that have worked before and we're comfortable that way. So it really took me something that I had no idea was going to work um, and decided not to come back for that year of uh, come back teaching and decided to start a program. So I asked the principal of the school at the time if she would allow me to do a surfing class. They have an elective period where the kids select an art class or a different PE class. And I asked if I could do a a PE class to pilot. So I pulled together wetsuit, pulled, pulled together boards, um, and, uh, did this class, uh, pulled together some of the kids that I knew, um, were interested in it. Uh, and we created a video and I had talked to them about how they felt about surfing and how that, how did it make them feel? And, uh, they were gave great testimonials on that first video talking about how surfing affected them and how surfing was positive to them. So took that video, uh, created a logo, created a name, uh, and ran with it and went through the city outreaching, uh, and proselytizing about surfing, uh, and how it could be a positive effect on our urban youth who have had no experience with the ocean or surfing, uh, who are largely underserved, 
who are in need of an extracurricular program. Nice. And did you turn it into a nonprofit right then? No. So to get started, we found a fiscal sponsor, uh, the Tides Foundation, uh, so that we could get we could get support and donations through them. And they agreed to take us on as a fiscal sponsor. Uh, we did that for about a year while we were applying for our 501c3. Yeah. And for people who don't know what a fiscal sponsor is, um, applying for a 501c3 is an arduous process. It's expensive. It takes a lot. So, uh, But without that status, you're not allowed to get tax-deductible donations from people. So what you can do is have a fiscal sponsor. In your case, you got the Tides Foundation. So the donation goes, it, the donation is written to the Tides Foundation. They then take a small percentage of it to process it, and then you get the money. Exactly. And we did that as we were applying for our 501c3. Finally got that after loopholes and paperwork. Yeah, you and gave me the, the wide eyes when I told you the 501c3, man. That's a whew, the golden handcuff world, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's largely money when it comes down to it. Uh, if you want to do it yourself, uh, I applaud you. Uh, but mainly what people do and I end up doing is just hiring a lawyer. Uh, to file um, the necessary documents and and then that costs money. But if you have a lawyer friend that's willing to help you out with it, um, you know, that's yeah. uh, more power to yeah. you. But now your setups is citysurfproject.org. Dot com. Dot com. And people can donate now and it's all tax deductible if they want to support it. Yes, we okay. are a total 501c3, uh, com, And we're growing, uh, but we're still a very grassroots, small organization. And when people support us, it's going directly into the program. You literally, if you give $200, that's four or five kids that are able to go surfing. Uh, and that's based on program costs. And we're adding more and more youth into the program. We are adding schools that are that are allowing us to do a surfing class uh, that I convinced the principal to do let us do a surfing class. Uh, another big uh, note that people should make is that we pay a lot of money in insurance. Uh, insurance is huge. We're surfing. Uh, and uh, we all know that the ocean uh, can provide waves and sometimes it can provide other, other things in the ocean uh, that we've known on the news lately. We don't really like to talk about them, but they're around. <laughs> the, men in the, gray the men in the gray suits. Exactly. The real locals. Right. Uh, the, the real locals. Uh, so we're covered. Yeah. Uh, and that's really important uh, that we're covered on, on all our bases. But you've expanded into other schools now. That's cool. Yeah, we're expanding. Uh, we've added on one more high school. We're looking to add another high school next school year and uh, another middle school as well. Uh, we've taken over 200 kids surfing uh, this this between 2016 and now into 2017, about 200 kids surfing. Many of them, uh, about 95% of them have never been surfing before. I would say about 80% of them had never spent step foot in the ocean before, which is kind of crazy to think about uh, that many of these kids uh, live a mile away from the beach. Uh, they live close, very close to the beach, uh, had never and have never been there before. And it just goes to show you how isolated 
San Francisco is in these pockets of neighborhoods and uh, isolated from wealth and surfing in the coastline uh, is a cherished place and and we love it um, but it's also a very isolated place uh, and that's something I think that surfers we take for granted and we don't realize or maybe we do because um, surfing you know is a is largely a territorial sport it's an exclusive sport and uh the coastline is something sacred to us and i definitely feel a notion in surfing that it's sacred and uh it's threatened um and we need to protect it um but if you really look from a a higher level and a really humanistic level that telling someone that they can't go to the coastline and it doesn't belong to them is largely just unfair and it makes no sense. And so I've had actually kind of grumpier old surfers ask me like, what are you doing? You know, the old local surfer, what are you doing? Like you're, what are you, you're opening up the doors for, for just us to lose this sacred place. And it's hard for me to even respond to that argument. Cause it's not an argument. Um, we are in a situation where we're privileged and it is our duty to show these people this beautiful coastline and to give them access to it. Yeah, access and education. It's an, it's an idiotic argument because you can't expect that someone's going to want to pick up their trash or be environmentalists if they don't have that connection to the ocean as well. And what you're doing, and I want to have you talk about it more, is, is teaching um, responsible etiquette to kids. Right. Um, tell me about how you developed this idea of the three pillars. So, yeah. So what we're doing with the program is much more than surfing. And it is important for us to help explain why it is important. Uh, and wh- well, help explain. So like you just touched upon, um, we're educating our students about the coastline and we're showing them this awesome place and by showing it to them we're helping them realize we're helping them appreciate it and upon appreciating it they understand why they need to protect it so at the start i would say you know we need to uh you need to protect the environment and you need to be environmentalists and they would say well, well why what what do i have you know, how, what do I have a stake in this for? But by going out and surfing and after the surf session, I would say to them, see how beautiful it was to be out there with no trash, with these beautiful waves. And they all agreed that it was, it was really cool to be in this special, clean, natural environment, largely different than their neighborhood, which can be riddled with trash. So I said, see, this is why I have you go out and do beach cleanups. This is why I'm forcing you to do beach cleanups is that we, our, our oceans are, are threatened. Uh, and it's our job, it's our duty as surfers to help protect them so that we can enjoy it. Um, so we can enjoy the surf that's, that we've been lucky enough to have. Yeah, and the way that you're going to do that is to get them to fall in love with it. I, I run into this a lot because um, I recently did a story on coral reefs 
and I was with the editorial team and we were talking about, okay, how do you get people to care about coral reef bleaching who have never um, put on a mask and snorkel and dove down and witnessed that majesty, right? And it's really difficult to. You first need to show people that, look, the ocean isn't this scary, treacherous place. It can be, and you should respect it, but it is also one of the most beautiful things that our our planet has to offer and you should experience it as much as possible and simply by doing that then you become an environmentalist but you can't put the cart before the horse it's very difficult to to make that logical argument of like oh yeah you should care about the polar bears but you have no connection to that absolutely yeah and it's in coral coral reefs is a great example too because you look at a coral reef and you're like i, I that's alive like i don't yeah. it's not swimming around like it's an cool, animal yeah right I, that's not swimming around like a cool fish like i understand but yeah and then and then you show what it looks like uh when a coral reef has been dynamited and then you're like oh wow that's okay that's what it is but yeah it's hard to really look at a coral reef and, and understand that it's alive. Uh, and yeah. And once you go down and really experience it firsthand, that's when it really, uh, that's when it seeps in. Uh, and that's what we're doing with the environmental aspect. And when we watch videos about the plastic situation and they learn about the plastic problem, it all relates back to this experience that they have, surfing that they can say and it's all comes down to that that now i've had this experience now it's my duty to protect it uh i am i have i have a reason to and that's the respect nature pillar and our second pillar is a healthy living uh and that's for the students to realize that surfing is a sport and they are doing something that's demanding to their body and they're sore and they're sore after and uh they're feeling good after and they're and that that's important and that's important part of surfers that we, why we do it it's our exercise it's uh, it's our way of of really uh being fit um and for them to also realize that being fit is important um and there is an obesity problem in lower income communities and so I saw an opportunity to attack that obesity problem with surfing with the program and that's educating around why it's important just to be active, but also what you eat. Uh, so we teach about healthy options for food. Uh, we teach about, uh, yeah, why it's important to put good things into your body, um, foods to stay away from yeah but again they're paying attention because you have this point of entry that has sparked this curiosity in them so you're not just saying hey we should eat some some avocados right now just just with nothing attached to it you're saying that after a surf session you're saying hey you're going to be able to surf longer and have a better time doing it and i think that it's important also um that you mentioned that you are you kind of are doing this right now, but it's important to mention that you're doing more than just taking the kids surfing. When I participated in uh, your program just a, f a few days ago, you had guest speakers come in and talk about careers that they have in relationship to the ocean. And it all kind of ties back into this this overarching theme of exposing kids to something that they never knew was possible. 
Exactly. And yeah, it, it all comes back to that surfing experience and what we can take away besides just surfing, uh, besides just our time on the waves is that it's, it's so much more. And it's this idea of lifestyle and, and culture. And I think that, uh, surfers, uh, there are some awesome parts of our culture. There's other parts of our culture that I would like to see, you know, changed or re- reformed a little bit. But there are some great things about our culture and that that we deserve to give to other cultures. And it's a great way for us to do this exchange and for us to really uh, connect with uh, with a different culture and this kind of comes back to my upbringing and and who I am as a person is this dual realities of the city kid, this urban kid who listened to hip hop and I would wear my pants baggy and sag them and thought I was going to be Eminem and would rap and thought I was this really cool urban kid. And I would go for the summer and spend and spend the whole summer on the beach and be this surfer beach kid and kind of this, bridge between those two worlds is that there is a possibility for us to bridge surf culture with urban, um, hip hop and, you know, what's, what's thought of typically as this urban culture and that there is a possibility to, to really do some, uh, learning both ways. Um, and that's a lot, a lot of times what happens with, with the program and it's, uh, it's fun to see. It's fun to see these kids learn about the surf culture. Um, and it's fun to see uh, volunteers and people that work in the, in, in our program and that participate in our program, learn about them. And it's fun to see this kind of bridging of two worlds. And it's a lot of it's breaking down barriers. Yeah. I think that's an important point is that a lot of times the volunteers are getting just as much out of it as the kids are, because, I, mean, I can speak personally, uh, growing up in Santa Cruz, I wasn't exposed to that kind of poverty um, and that kind of violence on a consistent basis. I'm a curious guy. I've um, chosen to educate myself about um, these systemic issues that we have. But for a lot of people, a lot of surfers who grew up on the coastline, they aren't really exposed to it and they don't really see the problem Um and because it's not in their face every day. So meeting some of these kids and learning about their reality um, is just as educational for the volunteers. Yeah, I think that's special to see. And that's something that I, another another aspect, another quality that's grown out of the program, like you just touched upon, is to see those interactions because taking a step back and looking at our world in San Francisco and just in a society at whole, we're divided and nothing could have shown you that more than, than the election and and looking at how polarized our societies are. And, um, I was flipping through the radio station, uh, on my way driving down the coast, uh, trying to uh, listen to some, um, talk show radio to get some good uh terminology to get my vocabulary up getting ready for this juices flowing exactly and i went on to rush limbaugh and listened about how um there the there's a conspiracy against trump and it started through obama and this whole fbi comey is all a big conspiracy against him listen to that for a moment flip through and then i uh landed on a very uh 
left-wing radio station all talking about exactly the opposite about um how the um the presidency and the the presidency is a minority who's in power right now they're they have a 45 percent of approval rating um so it's we have a minority that's ruling right now and that situation it was very left-wing um radio and it just kind of made me realize how polarized we are we're, we're really divided uh and in this program i we have this opportunity to break down those barriers and to really connect um two polarizing two uh worlds that have never really been connected before and to do that learning uh and uh i think it's i think it's productive because like we were talking about before when these kids who have never been to the beach before and all they knew about the beach is where they'd go and litter their trash and walk away. Um, now they're going there and enjoying the waves, interacting with other surfers, uh, and changing the whole, uh, aspect or changing the whole game and changing, uh, the whole, uh, I guess playing field of what you see out there and that's what it's really going to take uh in our world in our society is is a lot of changing the playing field and really breaking down barriers and getting people into uncomfortable situations for us to really move forward as a people and as a society I know that's kind of like big huge thinking in my small little program how is it going to do that but I really do see it on a daily basis I see these things happening I see um, us at the beach and people looking at this program of kids that they have never expected to see at the beach and the things coming out of their mouth and these people looking at me and kind of giving me a almost a high five with their eyes like good on you for what you're doing and um, that's the kind of stuff that that is 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 awesome to see I think so too and I think that uh, a lot of times we feel so overwhelmed um, by the problems of today that we don't know how to take the first step. Mm -hmm. I heard a quote recently that I really liked that went something like, we cannot let our inability to do everything undermine our, our determination to do something. Right. And I really like what you're doing because I do think that it's breaking down those walls and it's, it's depoliticizing it, right? We were talking about the left and the right, but these issues that we're talking about shouldn't be political. Everyone right. wants to breathe clean air. Everyone wants a clean ocean. No one wants violent crimes in in these areas. Um, w people want to feel more safe and connected with their community. That's not a left-right thing. That's just a human thing. That's, it's being a moral human moving through this world. And I think that the, the point of entry that you have created here is something that is accessible to people, and it's something that they can, that they can actually do. So right now, people can support your program by donating. They can also... Um, Volunteer is that right? Yeah, we have an amazing volunteer network, but we we need more volunteers. The volunteers are what make this program run. They are the lifeblood of this program. So we welcome uh, surfers, lifeguards, uh, people that will just want to come and and take pictures and just want to help out on the beach. Uh, we welcome everyone. We are trying to grow this community uh, to 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 include all. 
to include all people and to just really expand this community and this special thing that we got going. Uh, and yes, uh, we are not funded by the school district. The SFUSD does not have any money to pay us. Uh, they love our program and they're giving me the thumbs up, uh, but a zero dollar sign and what they can pay. So we rely on the community uh, to support this program and to keep it going. Uh, so on the website, it's really easy to donate. We're going to have uh, fundraisers coming up um, uh, periodically. And so come out, support, uh, and be a part of it. You heard him, everyone. Go get involved. All right. I'm going to leave you with a song by Sourgrass called Flashing Lights. I will link to their band page in the show notes under Johnny's bio on my website, kyle.surf. Coming up soon, we've got an episode with Albie Lair. All right. See you soon. Have a beautiful day. Get out in the water if you can.
song, not a single. 